Hi, I'm Matt Harrison, President of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and you're listening to Clerical Errors Podcast. Recorded live at Talks and Tasting Studios, it's the Clerical Errors Podcast, the podcast that shows you what's behind the collar. Let's go. Dr. James Bullhagen says in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, in reference to one of the great poems in the Bible, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he says this, This poem impacts the reader with everything it says. It exerts a force and leaves an impression. That impression is built up from the individual sayings, but the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So the poem cannot merely be dissected into its individual propositions. As poetry, the intent of the words is to move the reader, not merely to inform him. For today's episode, we are playing a keynote address given by our own pastor, Travis Berg, at this year's Bugenhagen Conference. It's a a conference for pastors, and it's uh, practical in nature. The title of the address is God's Aeolian Harp. It is not just a good... uh, Address for pastors, it's good for everyone to hear and offers a perspective about life and God's word that I think only Pastor Berg could give. And it uses poetry. I believe this is uh, Berg at his best. Um, one note the audio, audio quality is pretty good except for the first two minutes. The first couple of minutes is a little rough, but then it gets much better. And I'd also encourage you, the listener, uh, that you uh, share this episode with your pastor. I think he will probably like it. So here it is. Enjoy. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. John 3 is a very good place for us to start as we think about how poetry shapes the pastoral task. The Aeolian harp was named for Aeolus, the keeper of the winds mentioned in the Odyssey. The traditional Aeolian harp is a wooden box, including a sounding board with strings stretched lengthwise across two bridges. The wind blows across the strings, thus producing sounds. The Aeolian harp is the only stringed instrument played solely by the wind. So too is every pastor who is born of the Spirit, standing as a sentinel on the hill guarding the walls of Zion. He sounds the alarm when the foe attempts to breach the walls. And in his clarion calls to battle, he is like unto a trumpet or a ram's horn. But in the short times of God-given peace and rest, Spirit of God blows through the finely wrought instrument and produces a blessed melody. The great prophetic poet David knew the sound of the trumpet very well, yet it was his peaceful life, far from battle, which overthrew spiritual wickedness in high places, comforted the ears of the ancients, and still moves the hearts of generations today. The wind blows, but we cannot tell where it comes from, whither it goes. Poetry cannot be forced. God's spirit creates his sound at his leisure. This poetry, like the wind harp, is also numinous. It's ethereal. It's otherworldly because it does come from above. And yet the sound vibrates from very earthly materials, from the flesh and views of all mortal men. This presentation is meant to tighten those views and to develop your ear so that you might be a poetic creature too, an Aeolian heart. Now it's said that we must make an apology for poetry, but we have to. Many people in our society today... Other forms of speech like poetry confusing and too hard to wrap their minds around. We live in an age where words are being dispensed with in favor of emojis, Snapchats, and TikTok. Our people no longer have the imagination or the facility of ear to hear beautiful and well-crafted speech. 
And that's why we're stuck with short, silly sermons, which are often straightforward, but also incredibly boring. And you can blame Plato for a lot of this antipathy toward poetry. Plato was a philosopher who lived in Athens, Greece, about 2,400 years ago. He was a very powerful and influential speaker and is a foundational figure for our culture. But Plato hated poets. He is famous for having banished poetry and poets from the ideal city in the Republic. Plato's perfect society would have no place for Homer, Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides, or Aristophanes, the greatest names of Greek literature. And Plato's argument against poetry goes something like this. First, poetry is an imitation of an imitation. Therefore, it's three times removed from the truth. So why monkey around with a sloppy copy when you can get to the real deal? And second, Plato often rightly argues that the great poets like Homer are immoral. They do not teach morality, but they merely inflame the passions, the baser part of the human soul. They tell terrible lies about the gods, who are supposed to be the epitome of all that is good and beautiful and true. That's why Plato and many others in Western civilization have rejected poetry as a bunch of immoral lies. But fortunately, civilization has had different thoughts about this because poetry is oftentimes the first written piece of literature after a culture adopts the alphabet. I mean, look at the Greeks themselves. During their great dark age, the Greeks lost the ability to read and write their first system of syllabic script called Linear B, which they had inherited from the Minoan civilization. And so they were only an oral culture until about the 8th century BC. But when the Greeks inherited the alphabet from the Phoenicians, what did they first record? They first wrote down Homer's epic poems, the Iliad and the Odyssey. We see the same thing in the English language, too. Beowulf, the epic poem of a hero fighting monsters and a dragon, is the oldest surviving epic poem in the English language and the earliest piece of vernacular European literature. Poetry was the domain and the greatest weapon of the bards and the skalds who sang of smoking swords, sly sorcerers, beautiful maidens, fickle gods, haunted and cursed heroes, as hardened and calloused soldiers, raiders, and reavers all sat spellbound, their mead untouched, and their meat growing cold. But poetry was more than a tale spun out by a silver-tongued skald. In fact, we see that poetry was the main medium of communicating the gospel, the good news, from generation to generation for over 1,500 years. The first gospel promise of a savior found in Genesis 3.15 has one of the characteristics of Hebrew poetry, parallelism. And the scriptures are silent about any other gospel promise that they might have had at that time. What we do have from Adam to Noah are genealogies and a poem. Fathers taught their sons the gospel by means of this one poem. And this one poem framed public worship for over a thousand years. Moses calls public worship the calling upon the name of the Lord. We see it in the time of Enos. And this sort of phraseology is repeated again and again in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the pages of sacred scripture, we see that, that Plato is a liar. We see that this poetry is not an imitation of an imitation. It is a truer truth than what we see with our eyes right now. And here we see that this poetry is not immoral, but that it is the basis and the fountainhead of all good works and love. Poetry abounds in the Bible. Moses, the great prophet and lawgiver, wrote Psalm 90, which deals with the problems that every man has. Death, guilt, and God's grace. David, the great warrior king, soothed the madness of a fallen monarch and poured out his anguish through the composition of psalms, many of which we still sing and chant today in the liturgy. 
Mark Wagner writes that over 8,600 of the verses of the Bible are poetry, nearly 27% of all of the verses in Scripture. We see that poetry is a good and gracious gift from God. In fact, we see that God speaks to us over a fourth of the time in poetic language. But any good gift can be misused and usually is misused. Take the Cainites, for example. Cain's descendants took the poetry that God gave to them as gospel and twisted it and corrupted it. In Lamech, Cain's great-great-great-great-great-grandson, we see the first heathen poet. Not only is Lamech a progressive in that he commits bigamy, but he also recites a poem which is self-centered, self-seeking, and self-aggrandizing. It is a poem which defies God and deifies man. Like any good gift, poetry can be misused and misunderstood. But that ought to impel us to understand and correctly use this great gift of God. Why? Well, God is true, God is good, and God is beautiful. The gospel is beautiful. The cross, as we sing, is that tree of beauty, tree so fair, ordained those holy limbs to bear. Christ is fairer than the sons of men, as Psalm 45 says. That's why we pastors are, by our very calling, poets. We are the bringers of beauty into a benighted and boring world. Aaron, the first high priest, brought beauty to his congregation through the vestments that he donned, which were made for glory and for beauty. But let's go deeper than merely earthly beauty. Because, I mean, isn't that the problem with beautiful Savior? I mean, sum that him up. Jesus is prettier than the flowers. Jesus is prettier than the stars, and so on and so forth. But can Jesus actually be defined or compared to earthly beauty? I mean, look at what Isaiah says about him. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus' beauty and the gospel's beauty is not found with the eyes. Jesus' beauty and the gospel's beauty is heard with the ears. We bring beauty. We bring true and everlasting beauty by means of the ear. And so our speech should correspond and flow from God's word. So that way, the people actually cry out and say to us, How sweet are thy words unto my taste! Yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Our word should be as an honeycomb, sweet to the soul and health to the bones. We pastors bring color and vivacity to the line worker whose gray and monotonous life threatens to swallow him up with the horror of the commonplace. We pastors bring a heavenly spring in the midst of a white winter of discontent. We pastors bring beauteous, eternal life in the midst of the ugliness of sickness and death. We pastors take dry, old, bony truisms and fill them with new content, place them on their head, and put living flesh on its frame. We remind our people that the past is not simply a bucket of ashes, but that it is a great and noble heritage for which our fathers lived, contended, and died. The people who hear you ought to wonder at your gracious words and ask the question, is this Missouri's son? So how do we do this? After all, this is the Bugenhagen Conference. This is not a conference where we uh, participate in cloud castle building, but it's a practical conference. And even though at first glance, poetry might seem the opposite of practicality, we learn how poetry is practical in the life and work of the pastor. And so I'll give you some specific advice and books to read and to purchase so that you can enjoy and profitably use poetry in your pastorate. First off, you must love poetry and read it for yourself. It is the height of hypocrisy to teach others to love and cherish something, and then you yourself don't believe it and cherish it, and love it. But I already know that you love poetry because you love the Bible, which is replete with poetry. After all, over a quarter of the Bible is poetry. 
So let's begin with Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry is incredibly important to us as Lutherans because Luther, Luther began, began his teaching ministry with the Psalms. And we see the Psalms every Sunday because introits are appointed for every Sunday. Now, we all learned in seminary, and we all know that parallelism is an important part of Hebrew poetry, if not the chief organizing principle. However, there's a lot of debate about that. Contemporary theories imagine syllable counts to be defining. And then look at all those other questions that we have. I mean, what does Selah really mean? And what's the difference between Psalm 32, which is labeled as a maskil, and Psalm 16, which is labeled as a miktam? See, the great thing about Hebrew poetry is that it's like a river. You can either get your toes wet or you can jump right in and immerse yourself into it. See, I'm still a novice when it comes to Hebrew poetry, so... I can't talk very long about it without sounding like a fool. But I do have a list of suggested books which will teach you to understand and appreciate that Hebrew poetry. So that way it might inform your preaching. An artistic treatment of Hebrew poetry is Robert Altler's book, of the, book called The Art of Biblical Poetry. And David Peterson, not the Fort Wayne pastor, has a book called Interpreting Hebrew Poetry. And I've started to read uh, Interpreting Hebrew Poetry. It's got a great section uh, dealing with the different theories about what poetry is, um, the poetry pose continuum, and a lot of wonderful information there. It is a great technical and foundational introduction to Hebrew poetry, and it's one definitely worth getting. Uh, because Obviously, we should include the Psalms in our preaching, and we should understand the Psalms, not just theologically, but also technically, um, which is why, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's like listening to a sermon, right? People listen to a sermon, uh, and I think this is why pastors oftentimes uh, critique a lot harder than uh, other people, because we know how sermons are built. We see the technical aspects of it. And even though we might critique harsher than others, um, we can also um, appreciate um, the technical aspects that occur in a sermon, too. Well, now, in order to become a poetic pastor, you must also learn non-biblical poetry, too. And you learn by inwardly digesting. And so I would start by trying to memorize four poems in a year. Just start with that, four poems in a year, once every quarter. Now, some of you might think you're too old or too busy to do this. Well, you're not. Sir, <laughs> seriously, you're not. You're wrong. Sir Anthony Hopkins is 82 years old, okay? He has been making movies, he's still making movies, and he often goes over his scripts 200 times until he can do those scripts without thinking about it. Anthony Hopkins is a very busy man, and yet he tries to memorize a poem every single week. Every single week. And he's memorized uh, poetic luminaries like Shakespeare, Matthew Arnold, Yeats, and others. Right? I mean, if Hannibal Lecter can do it, you know, I think you guys can do it too, okay? So where do you start, right? Well, here are the top four poems that I would recommend for pastors to memorize. Now, this is just my list. Um, there are lots of good poems out there, but this is just a starting point. So the first poem that you should memorize, and honestly, I think this is a non-negotiable, is Death Be Not Proud by John Donne. This is a beautiful poem which treats death as death should be treated as nothing but a contemptible enemy which should be mocked by the joy of the resurrection. And it's an amazing poem because it builds this imagery of sleep into this beautiful climax at the end of the poem, which is, one short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. This poem is not only comforting to you, but it is very comforting 
to those who have lost loved ones. And this would also be a wonderful replacement for that so-called poetic drivel which is found on the back of most funeral bulletins, right? Or the ones that the, that the uh, uh, funeral homes print up, which get pretty ugly. The next poem that I would recommend is called The Clod and the Pebble by William Blake. Competing with the phone here. Okay, so this is actually a wonderful poem and uh, you'll have to indulge me because I'm going to recite it for you, okay? Love seeketh not itself to please, nor for itself hath any care, but for another gives its ease and builds a heaven and hell's despair. So sang a little clod of clay trampled by the cattle's feet, but a pebble of the brook warbled out these meters meet. Love seeketh only self to please, to bind another to its delight, takes joy in another's loss of ease, and builds a hell in heaven's despite. This is one of my favorite poems because I think it, act, it uh, really does show the difference between the love which the world has, which is self-centered, that seeks only to please itself, and which ultimately ends up making a hell uh, despite the help of heaven. Um, you, so you see that from the pebble, right? The hardness of heart. But then you see the clod of clay, the clod of clay which is trampled by the cattle's feet, which is despised and hated. And there we see the love of Christ, right? Love seeketh not itself to please, but it cares about the other. It loves the neighbor. It ha takes no thought for itself. And so this is... Uh, a very good passage to talk about the love which Christ has for us, distinguishing that from the love that the world has, love that Christians have for one another. Uh, we can use it to illustrate the hardness of heart, which is spoken of so often in Scripture, uh, and what it means to be tender-hearted, like King Josiah, and what Peter in his epistle exhorts us to have, to be tender-hearted. The third poem that I would recommend you memorize is The Collar by George Herbert. And this was a difficult poem for me to work through, but it was well worth the effort. It's a poem that reflects every sinful pastor's heart uh, when he's struggling with his calling. In this poem, the minister longs for freedom from the collar, from the call, and he strikes the board, which could be the altar and he cries, no more. He desires to be free, but the form and the rhyme of the poem shows that all such supposed freedom is just an illusion. He is sad and wants to be free because his ministry, his harvest, is full of nothing but thorns. And he asks the question, I mean, is everything wasted? Is everything meaningless? Should I go off on my own and find pleasures where I can take them? And as it goes along, the pastor becomes more fierce and wild in his speech until God speaks. And when God speaks at his word, the man repents and he dutifully answers, his anger gone and his faith restored. This poem is raw and it's very powerful for the pastor who is struggling in his parish. And uh, it's also very comforting as well. The fourth and final poem for you to memorize is On the Morning of Christ's Nativity by John Milton. This is by far the longest poem on the list. You could either memorize the whole thing or parts of it, uh, but this shouldn't stop you from learning it and enjoying it. Milton is a master. If you haven't read Paradise Lost or Samson Agonostes, which is his closet play, you've been deprived of two of the greatest works of English literature. Milton is a master of weaving in the false and evil lies of demons, which we commonly call mythology, with the veracity of Christ's incarnation. We see that pagan oracles are silenced by the advent of Christ's birth. And we hear these wonderful paradoxes of the incarnation in phrases like of wedded maid and virgin mother born. 
And after all of these pagan gods are listed and they've been shown that they are silent and defeated, we are told how they have been laid low. Our babe, to show his Godhead true, can in his swaddling bands control the damaged crew. This poem is a wonderful way for pastors to prepare for the Christmas season and also for the Annunciation, which almost always fall, falls within the season of Lent. So after you've memorized these poems, learned them by heart, however you want to talk about it, uh, recite them to anyone who is willing to listen to you and recite them anyways even if they don't want to listen to you. Okay? Recite them in sermons, in Bible classes, on the road, when you lie down at night and when you rise in the morning. But especially recite them to your children and to the children of your congregation. You are not being vain and you are not showing off. The public and frequent recitation of poems has actually had a huge impact on me personally. And what's even cooler is, is that I wasn't even around to hear these poems recited. I'll tell you a little bit about it. My mother fondly remembers her grandfather. And my great-grandfather recited Longfellow's poem, The Village Blacksmith, which he learned when he attended school. And so my great-grandfather, well, yeah, my great-grandfather would gather my mom and all of the children who would, and the grandchildren who would listen, and even if they didn't want to listen, he would drag them over anyway, and then he would recite this poem to them again and again and again. He would recite it every time they got together. And my mother didn't understand the value of this poem at the time, but this was something that she uh, told me later uh, as I was growing up. And she remembered the first part of that poem. And it goes something like this. Under a spreading chestnut tree, the village smithy stands. The smith, a mighty man is he, with large and sinewy hands. And the muscles of his brawny arms are strong as iron bands. Now, my mother never searched for this poem or read it herself. For her, it was always a fond memory of her grandfather. But I went ahead and read the poem in its entirety because, say what you will about the Enlightenment, having an internet search engine is really a great boon, <laughs> right? So, anyway, I discovered that The Village Blacksmith is a wonderful poem about what a man should be. Longfellow describes this blacksmith in this way. He says... His hair is crisp and black and long. His face is like the tan. His brow is wet with honest sweat. He earns whate'er he can and looks the whole world in the face, for he owes not any man. He goes on Sunday to the church and sits among his boys. He hears the parson pray and preach. He hears his daughter's voice singing in the village choir, and it makes his heart rejoice. Here, Longfellow in verse portrays a man who is physically strong and who is also honest and hardworking and pious. The blacksmith embodies manly virtue. He raises his family, he goes to church, and he sheds tears at the passing of his beloved wife. We all understand that this world needs more village blacksmiths, more men who are godly and virtuous, who are physically strong and spiritual lion hearts. And so let's teach our sons this, not only in deed and by example, but also through poetry, which they will remember all their lives long, that they can pass down to future generations, as my great-grandfather did through my mother. Now, pure poetry works in some cases, but... You're obviously not going to write an entire sermon uh, in, a, in poetry, right? You're not going to write a sonnet. Uh, you could. It would be kind of cool. But it's probably not going to work that way, right? Um, so this is not just about pure poetry. But there is also this poetry pose, prose continuum, right? And what I mean by this is that we can and should use poetic elements in our everyday speech and teaching. And, you know, there's actually a genre called prose poetry, 
And you ought to read it, but I wouldn't recommend it for novices. I mean, you can't break the rules when you don't know the rules. And I think that prose poems often cloak their laziness and call it novel. Then they call their inarticulate drivel profundity. But so obviously the thing that we do, the most important things that we do, we do on a weekly basis. And the, the way that we can add, you know, and where we're going to add poetic elements most frequently are going to be in our sermons and in Bible classes. So how do we do that? First, read good books for your enjoyment and your edification. Not all your reading and studying needs to be just for work, which of course makes that into a drudgery, but all of your reading can and will be used in your work as a pastor, whether directly or indirectly, because you're going to take all of this stuff in and look at it through the lens of faith and then use it to the glory of God. And studying shouldn't be a bore. Studying shouldn't be drudgery. It should be something enjoyable. It should be something fun. We should, we should love what we do. We should love studying. And if you are looking for a starting place, Mortimer Atler's Great Books of the Western World is a great place to start uh, so that you can dip your toe in that cultural Mississippi that we call Western civilization. And I use that, you know, of course the Mississippi gets dirtier the farther down the river you go, so. <laughs> or if you're more into fiction, then read The Power and the Glory by Graham Greene, The Violent Bear It Away by Flannery O'Connor, The Plague by Albert Camus, which is actually very timely for our days, The Shadow Over Innsmouth by H.P. Lovecraft, or The Accursed King series by Maurice Duran. Reading good books will refresh you and it will expose you to new words and to new speech styles. And don't ever use the excuse, I'm too busy. And I know because I've let myself fall into that pit too. And it was actually Eugene Peterson's book, The Contemplative Pastor, which taught me that being busy, being a busy pastor, is one of the worst maladies that can afflict us. If we're busy, it's for one of two reasons. First, we're vain, we're swollen up by pride, and we feel that we need to be the crutch which props up the feeble and aged Holy Ghost. Or, we are lazy, and we let others dictate what our jobs really are. It actually takes work to say no. And then we find ourselves frantically trying to fulfill a dozen different demands, none of which are actually essential to what we're called to do. See, we can't be busy, because how are we to lead our sheep to still waters if we are always frantic? How can we expect our people to be the quiet ones in the land when we're not still before God? As a pastor, you need unhurried leisure for prayer and for quiet study and for contemplation. How do we accomplish this? Well, let's take a cue from Eugene Peterson. The calendar is the tool with which to get unbusy. It is more effective than a protective secretary. It is less expensive than a retreat house. And so use your calendar. Mark out the times of day for prayer, for leisure, for silence, and for reading. Your preaching and your teaching will be better because you will be better. And don't feel false guilt about doing this because it's an imaginary sin. Your conscience needs to be conformed to the word of God. In Sirach 38, 25 through 26, which is actually quoted by Chemnitz at the beginning of his Enchiridion, says it the best. The wisdom of a scribe cometh by his time of leisure, and he that is less in action shall receive wisdom. With what wisdom shall he be furnished that holdeth the plow, and that glorieth in the good, that driveth the oxen therewith, and is occupied in their labors? And his whole talk is about the offspring of bulls. In short, you need leisure. You need the contemplative life 
So then that way, you can engage in the active life later. So take time off. Come to conferences like Bugenhagen. If you want to add poetic elements to your prose, here's what you do. You next memorize lines from Shakespeare, from Milton, and moderns like Carl Sandburg. These are just a few of the examples that I like to use, uh, but you can learn them yourself. You can learn other ones as well. So let's start with Shakespeare, the bard himself. There are so many quotable things in Shakespeare, but here are a few of my favorites. Let's start with the Scottish play, Macbeth. In Acts 2, scene 2, Lady Macbeth tells her husband, after they murder the king and their hands are covered in blood, a little water clears us of this deed. You see, Lady Macbeth thinks that mere water will wash away the blood and the guilt. But she eventually goes insane and kills herself because water doesn't blot out the damned spot. So what we can do with this image is turn it on its head and talk about holy baptism, where a little water does clear us of the deed, not because of the water, but because of the word of God in and with the water. So let's move on to Hamlet. In Acts 5, scene 2, Hamlet declaims, Our indiscretion sometimes serves us well when our deep plots do pall, and that should learn us. There's a divinity that shapes our ends. Rough-hew them how we will. This is actually one of my favorite quotes from Hamlet, uh, because oftentimes we feverishly plan and we try to craft our words. We never want to say anything wrong. And our parishioners do the same thing. They don't want to say anything wrong to their neighbor, and so they agonize about this, and they remain silent because they're so afraid of screwing it up. But when our great plans and plots fail, God uses our indiscretions, our impulsive actions, for his glory and to accomplish his will. I mean, we see this in the Bible, right? Samson's impulsive marriage to the Philistine girl in Judges 14 is a classic example of this. His parents are torn up that he is going to marry a daughter of the uncircumcised. But what does the scripture say? But his father and mother did not know it was of the Lord that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. Well, enough of the tragedies. Let's move on to a comedy. In The Merchant of Venice, uh, in Acts 2, scene 7, uh, the prince of Morocco comes and he is courting this beautiful maiden and uh, in order to win her hand, he has to choose one of three boxes. And when he chooses the golden box, which is the wrong container, he finds in this box a message with, uh, and it's stuck within the naked eye socket of a grinning skull. And it says, and the message, yeah, right, yeah, it's great, right? Because now he has to be celibate for life, so, I mean, it's terrible. But, you know, kind of funny, too. So, but the message reads, all that glitters is not gold. Often have you heard that told. Many a man his life hath sold, but my outside to behold. Gilded tombs do worms enfold. All that glitters is not gold. This is a great quotation to talk about things like marriage, right? Why should you choose a wife? Because she's pretty? Is that the only reason? No, of course not. All that glitters is not gold, right? Uh, once again, you can talk about wealth. You can talk about what true wealth is. You can talk about the gospel itself, right? These things lend themselves to many, many applications. But enough of Shakespeare, let's move on to the next poet, John Milton, and especially his Paradise Lost. I mean, listen to these wonderful lines. Of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree, whose mortal taste brought death into the world, and all our woe, with loss of Eden, till one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat. I mean, that should just tug at your heartstrings, right? Because just in a few lines, he's basically encapsulated um, all of biblical history and redemption. Or this, abashed the devil, devil stood 
and felt how awful goodness is and saw virtue in her shape, how lovely, and pined his loss. That goodness is antithetical. It's hurtful to the devil. He hates it. He is abashed by this by, by beautiful Eve, who is perfect and lovely in the sight of God and in the sight of her husband, right? These things hurt the devil, right? And it's interesting, too, because I first ho- heard this line quoted in the movie The Crow, right? So, I mean, you know, so, which, you know, is probably not all that edifying. I wouldn't watch it, but, you know, read Milton, so... Or, you know, here's another thing that you can pick up from Milton, right? Listen to this wonderful prayer. What in me is dark illumine? What is low rays and support? That to the height of this great argument I may assert eternal providence and justify the ways of God to men. I mean, this should be a prayer that every pastor prays every single day, right? That whatever is dark in me illumine, illumined by the Holy Spirit, Whatever is low in me, raise up and support, right? Because that is our job, is to assert eternal providence. Or one of my favorites is actually the uh, description of, the, of one group of damned angels in hell. So after they have the big council and Satan goes to uh, tempt our first parents into sin, um, the different groups of angels actually go out and they do different things. Some play sports like softball. Um, not really, but you know. Um, but others apart sat on a hill retired in thoughts more elevate and reasoned the high of providence, knowledge, will, and fate, fixed fate, free will, for knowledge absolute, and found no end in wandering mazes lost. I mean, if I was in charge of the world, uh, I'd make this into seminary memory work since this particular passage depicts the particular temptation that afflicts seminarians to speculate beyond what God has actually written in his word. This is good for us, too, as pastors, because uh, this is our great temptation um, to speculate and in high and elevated thoughts, or what we think are high and elevated thoughts, to think about things uh, that we should actually be silent on. And in that speculation, we find no end. And we're lost in wandering mazes of error and darkness. Finally, let's end this section with Carl Sandburn, Carl Sandburg, an American poet. Here's a great line for us to use. There are some people who can receive a truth by no other way than to have their understanding shocked and insulted. And this is what the gospel is, right? The gospel is the scandal to the Jews, and it is foolishness to the Greeks. And it definitely shocks and insults our fleshly dispositions and our ruminations. And so we shouldn't actually shy away uh, from this sort of shocking and insulting language, right? But because sometimes that's the only way that people will actually hear the gospel. Or here's another one. I tell you the past is a bucket of ashes. This was actually a quote that I had learned many, many years before uh, in high school from my English uh, teacher. He would quote this all the time. And he never told us where it came from or where he got it, but he would always say, the past is a bucket of ashes. And you guys could have a lot of fun with this, right? You can turn this saying on its head and argue that the past event of salvation burns just as brightly today as it did 2,000 years ago, right? Or you could use this phrase, the past, the past is a bucket of ashes, to explain Jeremiah 16, 14 through 15, and Jeremiah 23, 6 through 8. This is where God says, in his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our Righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country and from all the countries where I have driven them. 
and they shall dwell in their own land. Here, you could argue that the past deliverance of Egypt from uh, of, of Israel from Egypt is a bucket of ashes, for it does not compare to the deliverance which God will perform in gathering his church through Jesus, who is the Lord our righteousness. And here's a final one. A baby is God's opinion that life should go on. A book that does nothing to you is dead. A baby, whether it does anything to you, represents life. If a bad fire should break out in this house and I had my choice of saving the library or the babies, I would save what is alive. Now will, now will a time come when the most marvelous recent invention is as marvelous as a newborn baby. Never will a time come when the most marvelous recent invention is as marvelous as a newborn baby. And the fathers in the room understand this. Anybody who's ever seen a baby understands this because babies are awesome, right? And that should give us hope. There is no reason for us to be depressed. Babies are God's opinion that life should go on, right? They are more important than anything else because they do. They represent life, right? This can cover everything from abortion to talks about contraception, right? why it's important for us to have children because children are a blessing from God. They represent life. They are, they, are, they are sacramental in the sense that God is saying, yes, I want this world to go on. My promise still stands. Children are a blessing from God. And this is a wonderful quote that will stick in the minds of your people. Now, a third thing that you can do to add poetic elements to your sermons and Bible studies is to use things like poetic devices. And we can start with alliteration, where we use the same consonant in a series of words. And some people don't like alliteration, and that's fine, but, you know, don't poo-poo it, because alliteration was incredibly important for Old Norse and Anglo-Saxon poets, and poets, and it heavily influenced Tolkien. And Tolkien is a master when it comes to alliteration. You can see this in his unfinished poem, The Fall of Arthur. Arthur goes out to war, and he does this, thus the tides of time to turn backward, and the heathen to humble, his hope urged him, that with harrying ships they should hunt no more on the shining shores and shallow waters of South Britain, booty-seeking. I mean, if that isn't beautiful, if that doesn't touch you in some ways, then I think you're probably dead inside. <laughs> anyway, another way to include poetic elements in your sermons is parallelisms. And we see parallelisms all over the Bible and not just in the Psalms either. Lamech's poem in Genesis 4 exhibits parallelism when he says, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Ye wives of Lamech, hearken unto my speech. Parallelism is also used in Shakespeare's Richard II, where he says, I give my jewels for a set of beads, a rosary, my gorgeous palace for a hermitage, my subjects for a pair of carved saints, and my large kingdom for a little grave. Parallelism is great because you are repeating the same thought, but you add just a little bit more to it uh, every single time. And uh, it's like looking at the facets of a diamond. You just keep turning the diamond a little bit and adding more and more beauty and luster to the thought that you're trying to get across. Another poetic element to include are chiasms, which are reverse parallelisms. Frankly, I heard enough about chiasms at seminary, so I'm not going to talk about them here. If you want to know more, read Dr. Just's books. One interesting poetic device is the, uh, the epistrophe. An epistrophe is the repetition of a word or a phrase at the end of successive clauses or sentences. And St. Paul does this very, very beautifully in 1 Corinthians 13, 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. This is great for emphasis, and you're not, once again, repeating just the same point over and over again. 
but each repetition moves the argument along and it shows a progression of thought. Another thing you can do is bring poetic elements into your preaching by using vivid imagery. First and foremost, we draw vivid imagery from the biblical texts themselves. This is why we know the original languages and why we can often see shades of meaning that English translations by necessity lack. And we ought to use the word pictures that the Bible gives. When the New Testament gives us an image, then we should then go back to the Old Testament and find the sim similar images in order to reinforce those New Testament images. Like, for example, uh, if we are talking about the church as being a temple of living stones, right, or being God's building, then we should probably use the description of Solomon's temple in order to form this picture in the mind's eye. On the contrary, if you want to talk about how the world builds or how the devil builds a chapel, right, what the devil's church looks like, you could probably contrast that with when um, Ahaz uh, takes the plans from, uh, the, from Assyria in 2 Kings 18.10 for an altar, right? And so you can compare and contrast these things in your sermon and do a masterful job of it, right? And another example, you know, and here's kind of a negative example of when we actually don't put in the hard work and work hard to craft our images. Um, at my grandfather's funeral, uh, there was a pastor, he was an LC, LCMC pastor. Um, he used none of the biblical texts that were read, right, which, surprise, surprise. Uh, but he decided to use a farming illustration to speak about the hope that we have in Christ because my grandfather was a farmer. And that's fine, right? You know, you think he'd use images from the parable of the sower or, you know, something like that, right? That would make sense. No, he spoke about the soil as sin, the rain as baptism, and then he never actually used uh, the image of the seed at all. See, it was ill-conceived, it was sloppy, and it was a complete misuse of the images that Scripture actually gives us, which would have actually been incredibly comforting. So this is why if you're going to use images, use them rightly. Actually put in the hard work. Craft your sermons. Make it make sense. The use of hymns, quoting hymns, singing hymns, and the like, they also bring poetic elements into your preaching and teaching. Now, I'm not going to talk very long on this because others have already covered this very, very well. All I have to say is don't limit yourself to the Lutheran service book. There are many beautiful, vibrant, and arrestingly vivid hymns in the Lutheran hymnal. I mean, just take a look at hymn 470, Rise Again, Ye Lionhearted, stanza three, which says, Great of heart, they know no turning. Honor gold, they laugh to scorn. Quench desires within them burning. By no earthly passion torn. Mid the lions roaring, songs of praise outpouring. Joyously they take their stand on the arena's bloody sand. You should also buy and mine the Evangelical Lutheran hymnary, the ELS hymnal. Um, there's some really wonderful hymns in there. Um, the one that I think is very, uh, has some very powerful imagery in it is hymn 288, um, Beneath the Cross of Jesus Kneeling, stanzas 2 and 3. It says, God wrought for man his love forth showing when Moses smote the rock of old. And lo, through Israel's camp on flowing, broke forth the longed for flood and rolled. New strength, new joy, new life bestowed on lips that quaffed it pure and cold. Now listen to the next stanza. God wrought for man, mankind redeeming, when Christ was pierced by Roman spear. And o'er the thirsty world downstreaming, forth gushed a fountain cool and clear till souls those blessed waters near, forgotten joy, sin's desert drear. It's amazing. It's an amazing use of the Old Testament text that Christ is the rock that followed them with the piercing of Christ's side. 
And um, so look to other hymnals too, right? Finally, modern images bring the poetic into your teaching as well. Modern images are the last images that I think we should use because we have so many other wonderful images to use first. But that doesn't mean that these images are ineffective or weak. Uh, Paul Hensel, one of my favorite authors right now, uses this modern reference when he is describing a unionist. As Red Butler had the time of his life to catch Scarlett O'Hara between husbands, as you labor to pin him down to fundamentals, the unionist will give you a merry chase. If he succeeds in ensnaring you with his schemes, ostensibly for the furtherance of the gospel, he will bed you luxuriously and douse you in sweetness. But if you prick his toy balloons, he will not spare you in the day of vengeance. So anyone who has read or seen Gone with the Wind will be struck by Hensel's very powerful imagery there. But caveat, please make sure you actually know how the image works and sounds, right? Actually know what you're talking about. Don't talk about modern farming if you don't actually know anything about farming, right? Because you look like an idiot and you've actually, rather than connecting with your people, you've actually set up a mental obstacle for your farmers because they leave church and think you are stupid. So, I mean, the least that you can do is Google it or go out in the tractor and combine and learn something, right? If you're going to use modern images. Well, I want to end my presentation with the final step of becoming an Aeolian harp, a poetic pastor. And that means writing your own poems. The problem with our society is that we are all spectators. We don't get involved. Each town used to have its own baseball team. Each family used to make its own music. And this is something that we should resurrect, not just with sports or with music, but with poetry too. And I really don't care if your poems are not that great. I mean, lay the groundwork, right? And create a culture in your own household. And perhaps in a generation or two, it'll be your household that pr produces the next Gerhardt, right? So in order to write poetry, you actually need to know the rules. The book Trivium, The Classical Liberal Arts of Grammar, Logic, and Rhetoric, is a great and accessible book on a variety of topics, especially poetry. And this is a great book for you, the pastor, but it's also a great book for your children as you teach them in your home about a variety of topics. And, I mean, if you don't want to spend any money or don't have any money, I mean, you have the internet, you have Wikipedia. I mean, you can learn, look up what a sonnet or iambic pentameter is. So. First thing you do, pick a poetic form. I prefer iambic pentameter since it is a traditional type of English poetry and verse drama. Rhyme if you want to or don't. But unless you're writing an epic poem, uh, I would use some sort of rhyme scheme. It keeps you disciplined and it forces you to express the faith using a particular form. Laziness is the pastor's bane. And sticking to traditional rhyme and meter helps you to avoid laziness and it encourages self-discipline. So I thought I'd end with a poem that I wrote based on Nehemiah 4, 17 through 18. And I think I wrote it after I heard about the troubles of a fellow pastor. With sharp sword strapped and muddy trowel near, he climbs the crumbling walls of glory gone. Now foxes live where marched the echelon of prince and priest who ruled without fear. Where the lost noontime of this realm a tear rolls down his cheek so weathered and so wane. This place of God is trampled by the spawn of heathen hordes by God's dread judgment drawn who can resist the thrusting sanctioned spear. But he takes heart for this is God's own wall. He is no mighty king brought back to life. Yet God sent him to build this rampart high. And so the man takes strength in this, his call, to build God's wall and bear the sword in strife. Arising, he scrapes stone as dawn draws nigh. Dear brothers, you are Aeolian harps. Strength, sharpen your minds and strengthen those thews. For God works through us to bring goodness, truth, 
and especially beauty to an evil, false, and ugly world. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Questions, thoughts, concerns? You can contact us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast, on Twitter at clericalheirsp for podcast, or email us at feedback at clericalheirs.org. Thanks for listening to Clerical Heirs. See you next time.